I mean, it's not, it's not a question, a matter of whether I think something is reversible or not. Science clearly shows that already now, already at 1.5 degrees of global average temperature rise, we will be seeing irreversible tipping points beyond human control that we will not be able to, to reverse. That's the Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg talking with Sarah Ferguson on the ABC's 7.30 report. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. First we hear ABC reporter David Spears introducing the segment. Then we hear Sarah Ferguson talking with Greta. Days out from this year's United Nations Climate Summit in Egypt, activist Greta Thunberg has called for more ambitious cuts to global emissions, while expressing scepticism that the summit will deliver them. She's produced a new book, aptly named The Climate Book, which expresses hope that there's still time to avert the worst of global warming, despite the bleak predictions. She spoke to Sarah Ferguson from her home in Sweden. But first, here's an excerpt from the teenager's address to the UN back in 2019. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. Greta Thunberg, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. In your new book, you appear to be despairing of our chances of saving the planet. Is that a fair assessment of where you are right now? Um, I don't think so, actually. Um, people often ask me whether I'm a pessimist or an optimist when it comes to saving the, the climate. Uh, and I, I always say that I'm a realist. It is definitely possible for us to avoid the worst consequences of this crisis, but not if we continue like now. Um, there is certainly opportunities and chances for us to be able to, to save what we can possibly save. But as long as we continue like we are now, there's not very much hope in sight. You say that in your book. You say that we can't live sustainably within the world's economic system. And there are predictions that the world economy will double in size by 2050. So how do you produce the kind of change that you want to see in the face of that? Of course, we don't know exactly how to do that. If we knew the answer to that, then this wouldn't be as big of a crisis as it is. Um, when I say that we can't live sustainably within an unsustainable world, uh, one very clear example of that is how, for example, I was just sitting right now calculating my own carbon footprint. And even if I click that I do everything right, I still exceed the planetary boundaries just by existing uh, and just by paying taxes. So it's, it's impossible to live sustainably today. You clearly think that the phrase climate change isn't enough now to describe the situation that we're in, that the climate is breaking down and destabilizing. Do you think that that process is irreversible? I mean, 
it's not, it's not a question, a matter of whether I think something is reversible or not. Science clearly shows that already now, already at 1.5 degrees of global average temperature rise, we will be seeing irreversible tipping points beyond human control that we will not be able to, to reverse. Um, we, we need to heed the principles of safety. It seems like for every issue, apart from the climate issue, we go for the safest option. Let me ask you this. Here's a quote from you. You say, net zero by 2050 is too little, too late. Tell me why you say that. Net zero, of course, it, it can be any date. Uh, what's usually being talked about is net zero 2050 or net zero 2045, as we have here in Sweden. Um, and, and these are cherry-picked dates uh, based on carbon budgets, which do not give us um, a large... A, a, a big chance of staying below and meeting our internationally agreed climate targets. Mm. Um, it also excludes many crucial factors like tipping points and feedback loops, and also is often usually completely dependent on negative emissions technologies that yes. do not exist at scale. Um, because the climate crisis is a cumulative crisis, if we completely ignore the historical emissions that now have been spent predominantly by the nations of the global north, um, then we will not be able to solve this crisis. For us to have a 66% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees C, 90% um, almost of that carbon budget has, has already been spent. If we can ignore those 90% of this crisis, that's very, very, very naive. The big climate change conference in Egypt is about to start. Now, you condemned the last one as a failure and a PR exercise, and, and you said that the leaders were guilty of decades of blah, blah, blah. Do you expect any more from this one? I do not, um, unfortunately. But as it is now, the cops are not designed to really change anything. Um, that's not why they exist. Uh, and right now, it's like they are being turned into an opportunity for for big polluters to greenwash themselves. Um, as long as it is now, as long as people, as long as the level of awareness is so low as it is now, then people will not be able to have the knowledge they need to put pressure on the people in power. And then they will continue to get away with not doing enough. Um, and they will use words against us. Um, using greenwashing in order, in order to make it seem like they're doing something when they're not, using PR tactics and communication strategies disguised as politics. Um, so the way that COP27 would for me be considered a success or a step forward would be that more people realize what a scam it actually is, is um, under current circumstances. I want to talk to you about Australia. We've got a new government who says, in their words, they're committed to dramatically lowering Australia's carbon emissions. But at the same time, Australia is one of the biggest exporters of coal and gas to the world. If you had one message to the Australian people, what would it be? I guess it would just be as simple as uh, wake up and treat the climate emergency like an emergency. Um, I hear... It seems like many people in Australia think that now we have a new government, now everything will be fine. Of course, that is very, very far from true. Um, of course, 
there are some parties and some some governments that are a bit less worse than some others, of course. But as long as we treat the, the climate crisis as a side topic or as a political issue among other political issues and so on, and do not see it for as the emergency it is, and as long as we do not connect that crisis to many other interconnected crises and the more time we would lose. And if we just keep pretending that we can solve this crisis by by having a new government, for example, then that's not really realizing the full extent of this emergency. So we have to keep pushing in every possible way. The view of successive governments here has been that it's up to the countries we export to to be responsible for the emissions that the coal and gas produces. Do you accept that argument? Um, I mean, it's emissions accounting is very, very complicated. Um, and there will always be someone who blames someone else. Um, and of course, it's then it's difficult to hold anyone to account. I do think that what we need to do is to take collective responsibility, that everyone takes the responsibility for their bit, for everything that they can do. Of course, everyone cannot do everything, but if you have an opportunity to do something to stop to stop doing certain things, I think that, that that is a moral obligation to do so, even though some people might use that opportunity to blame someone else. Unless someone is willing and able to, to give up that mindset, no one else is going to do it too. And if countries like Australia and my own country, Sweden, of course, too, unless we are able to give that up and actually start taking responsibility, then who are we to expect anyone else to do so? Greta Thunberg, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you. Officials from nearly 200 nations are gathering in El Sham Sheikh, Egypt, for the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP27. Multiple global crises threaten to overshadow the summit, but the task at COP27 over the next two weeks is more urgent than ever. A report released today by the Climate Council shows the world is in the grip of a deepening climate crisis. Without more ambitious emission cuts this decade, we are headed for a full-blown catastrophe. That's from a story on The Conversation by Wesley Morgan, a research fellow from the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. The story is headed, This is what Australia needs to bring to Egypt for COP27. It continues... In this time of global volatility, Australia can play a key role. At COP27, Australian officials will be lobbying to co-host the UN National Climate Talks with Pacific Island countries. But to succeed in its bid, Australia will need to walk the talk. That means moving rapidly away from coal and gas and helping developing nations to manage climate impacts. Wesley Morgan says, After a decade of denial and delay... Australia has rejoined the global shift towards a clean energy economy. However, Australia's new 2030 target to cut emissions by 43% from 2005 levels is still one of the weakest in the developed world, and dozens of major fossil fuel projects remain in the pipeline. Now it's time to hear from Michael West from Michael West Media telling readers about a new state power. He says Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is bringing back the government-owned State Electricity Commission to reverse the decades-long privatisation of Australia's energy market. 
Some media outlets, according to Michael West, are ramping up faux outrage whilst cooler heads know if done right. It should prove wrong long espoused benefits of neoliberal economics. Let's have a listen now to Michael West. So there's an election coming in Victoria and there was a momentous announcement by Premier Dan Andrews the other day. We expected so much wailing and gnashing of teeth at this announcement. And there was a little bit in the mainstream media, which is financed by fossil fuel corporations, but not much, not yet. They must be gathering their black arts forces, their PR people to come out with a good campaign. But the guts of it is this, Andrews has said he will nationalise Victoria's electricity sector. By that, he doesn't mean buy out the existing players. It's controlled by three Hong Kong billionaires, by the way. But what he said is that the government will set up a renewable agency to compete and they will reinstitute the State Electricity Commission. Back in the day, there was not a hundred different retailers and distributors and transmission providers and all this mess that is the electricity sector now. There was just one state electricity commission and the commissioner would trudge up to Senate estimates and say prices are going to go up 3% this year. Now we know what the result of privatisation was. Prices have gone through the roof. Foreign corporations and billionaires are ripping huge profits out of Australia, have done for decades. Consumers pay for it via their bills. So this is a huge decision by Dan Andrews because what it does is it makes these profiteering energy companies compete with the State Electricity Corporation. Prices should be lower. But there's a bigger thing from all this. Assuming the Andrews project works, the nationalisation works and produces cheaper energy for the citizens of Victoria, that could spell the death knell for something we've lived with now for decades. It's a prevailing economic social theory of neoliberalism, trickle-down economics. Everything's better in private hands, they say. Privatise everything, sell it off, and the wealth will trickle down. Well, the wealth doesn't trickle down. We're not paid properly for our assets. Control passes to foreign corporations, and they don't pay a lot of tax. So what this means is, if the Andrews experiment works, this could spell the death knell for this privatisation fad, this idea that things always work better if they're sold off. Because if we look at airports, Sydney Airport, if we look at toll roads, the transurban monopoly of monopolies across Australia, if we look at electricity where prices are more than doubled, privatisation has failed in large part. Where is the real private enterprise? This is crony capitalism. And hopefully the Andrews experiment in Victoria will expose neoliberalism for what it is. Please like and share the video. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, we'll keep on pumping out these videos to hold government and large corporations to account. A story on the New Daily tells readers hard climate truths, everything you need to know about COP27. These days, it seems the world is lurching from one climate-induced catastrophe to the next. Floods, fires and natural disasters are standard fixtures in news bulletins. In the face of this global threat, calls are increasing for international community to cooperate, find common ground and confront climate change. COP represents an opportunity to do just that. The question is asked, what is COP? COP stands for Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. 
It's a decision-making body for the world's climate change commitments. This year's conference will be the 27th conference, hence the 27th. COP27 begins on Sunday and will be a fortnight-long series of conferences, talks and discussions between global leaders to flesh out countries' climate commitments and coordinate efforts to combat climate change. Meanwhile, Dominic Rush writes in The Guardian, Big agriculture warns farming must change or risk destroying the planet. Food companies and governments must come together immediately to change the world's agricultural practices or risk destroying the planet, according to sponsors of a report by some of the largest food and farming businesses released on Tuesday. The report from a task force within the Sustainable Markets Initiative, that's the SMI, a network of global CSOs focused on climate issues established by King Charles III, is being released days before the start of the United Nations COP27 climate summit in Egypt. Many of the world's largest food and agricultural businesses have championed sustainable agricultural practices in recent years. Regenerative farming practices, which prioritise cutting greenhouse gas emissions, soil health and water conservation, now cover 15% of croplands. And on SBS News we hear, Australia is heavily reliant on carbon offsets. This is what it needs to bring to Egypt for COP27. The story begins. Officials from nearly 200 nations are gathering in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, for the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP27. Multiple global crises threaten to overshadow the summit, but the task at COP27 over the next two weeks is more urgent than ever. A report released today by the Climate Council shows the world is in the grip of a deepening climate crisis. Without more ambitious emission cuts this decade, we're headed for a full-blown catastrophe. Writing in the Melbourne Age, environment reporter Mickey Perkins tells readers, Terrible for the climate. Victoria's native logging emissions equivalent to 700,000 cars. Native forest logged in Victoria produces about 3 million tonnes of carbon emissions each year, equivalent to the pollution from 7,000, 700,000 medium-sized cars, or double the state's domestic aviation sector, research shows. For the first time, Victoria's native logging emissions have been calculated and made public. These findings, commissioned by the Victorian Forest Alliance, will increase pressure on the state Labor government to bring forward the industry's planned 2030 closure. Carbon emissions produced from logging now have long been unclear because they are not separated from official figures from the carbon dioxide absorbed by forest and forestry plantations. Australian National University ecologist Professor David Lindemar has seen the report and agrees with its findings. Protecting and restoring native forest was a central climate change action if Australia was to meet its net zero emissions targets, he said. Only native forests can remove carbon from the atmosphere at a scale and time required. Three other stories from the Melbourne Age, check them out in the show notes, and another from the Climate Council. Again, you'll find that in the show notes. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet, it's fighting a huge battle. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share with your friends.